1: to
2: take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com system i'm kate winkler dawson a journalist
3: author and podcast host and i'm paul holes a retired investigator with experience solving some of america's most notorious cold cases
2: together we host buried bones a historical true crime podcast on the exactly right network
3: Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies.
2: Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897.
3: Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday.
2: Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Burke and Hare never robbed graves. The first victim happened to die in Hare's boarding house, and after that they went straight to murdering people.
2: No middleman here.
0: I mean, why rob graves? It's a lot easier to kill people.
2: Is it, is it easier to kill people?
0: <laughs> Even robbing a grave, you've got to dig a six-foot hole through the mud.
2: It was now the beginning of 1828, just a month or two after old Donald had finally become useful. Dr. Robert Knox had paid William Burke and William Hare almost eight pounds for his body. That was nine months' worth of wages for them both. It was a windfall. And now Hare might have another fortuitous opportunity. Fortuitous for him. A man with a horrible fever, someone nicknamed Joseph the Miller, was staying in his lodge. Investigators never really learned the names of most of the victims. They were anonymous the most vulnerable people in Old Town. In the early 1800s, the Scottish government was very concerned about infectious diseases, like cholera.
1: There was considerable likelihood of a cholera epidemic happening in Edinburgh, and indeed there was one across all Britain in 1831 to a couple of years later. So any house, rest house or whatever, where people might happen to be were suffering from and, above all, dying of infectious diseases, should be closed down. You were not allowed to have any other lodges there or indeed remain there yourself. The very property which Margaret Hare had uh, inherited from her previous husband uh, would be forfeit.
2: So when someone turned up ill at a boarding house, the business was usually shuttered and the owners were forced to move out. Historian Owen Dudley Edwards says that William Hare was determined not to let that happen.
1: Here was the man dying, and there was Burke, and there was Hare looking at the man. And if the man would only die quick, they could always get rid of the body.
2: As Joseph's condition worsened, Hare became frantic. He turned to William Burke for help. The men stood over Joseph as he lay there with his eyes closed. Janet Philp says this is when their journey as serial killers began. With self-preservation,
0: Joe was sick and in the boarding house, and Hare didn't want the idea that there was sickness in his boarding house getting out, and so they helped him over the edge.
2: Rather than taking the chance of the boarding house being shut down, they took a pillow and smothered him. Now they were murderers.
1: After all, don't forget, the motive for killing him wasn't one of gain primarily, it was one of fear. And of course, money was helpful too.
0: The anatomists were paying eight to 10 pounds per body. So eight to 10 pounds and Hare was getting 3P for people sleeping in his boarding house. If you get away with the first time and you've made that amount of money, the temptation to do it again must be overwhelming. Burke
2: and Hare shoved Joseph the Miller into a tea chest. They carried him down to Surgeon Square late at night. Dr. Knox's assistant surveyed the corpse and handed them 10 pounds about two pounds more than they were offered for old Donald. And Dr. Knox had no reason to be suspicious with this body. Joseph was clearly ill, and there were no suspicious marks on him, no self-defense wounds. By now, Burke's common-law wife, Helen McDougall, and Hare's wife, Margaret, both knew. And both were willing to help, though the whole thing did make Nellie McDougall a bit nervous. The Hare's were too volatile for her, especially when they drank too much. They fought so violently. But it was an incredible amount of money to pass up. And now, Burke and Hare were in business together.
0: So you could see that having been presented with a really easy way to make money, that's what they did. Doesn't that seem like a jump to you? To go from
2: hauling a, a dead body down in a T-chest to killing people that they've lured off the street?
0: See, there's a progression in the methods They used. You can argue—it's I mean, not a very good moral argument—that it's it's better to kill someone who's sick than to kill someone who's not.
2: But just like other prolific serial killers, Burke and Hare were savvy. They made sure to select the right victims. Edinburgh was a transitory city in the early 1800s. Visitors came and went constantly, and many of those people had no ties to the community. They were anonymous—the perfect victims. There is still some debate of the order of the murders, and you'll find out why a bit later on. So I'm listing them in the order that seems the most reliable with the help of author Janet Philp. Abigail Simpson was once a salt seller, but by early 1828, she was an old, lonely woman visiting the city in frigid February to beg. William and Margaret Hare invited her into their warm parlor with an offer of a glass of whiskey although they didn't tell Abigail that they were married. She must have felt a bit more secure with another woman around. Hare smiled at her as she drank her dram and talked about her pretty young daughter. He could tell that she was vulnerable. He poured more whiskey for them both. She was slurring her words, but Hare seemed sober, even if he wasn't.
0: Burke and Hare drunk people under the table. They were very good at it. They, they used to drink half a pint of whiskey for breakfast, Normally.
2: Hare sat by the fire and smiled. He told Abigail that he could propose marriage to her daughter, that he had money. I know that might have seemed rash after just a brief encounter, but for a desperate woman carrying just a few pence, it was really welcome news. Hare saw she could barely sit up at this point. He suggested that the old woman spend the night. Abigail passed out, and the next morning, she began to vomit. Burke and Hare hovered over her. They gave her more whiskey She picked up a bottle of Porter, a type of beer. Soon she was passed out. Now comes the twist. One of the reasons why William Burke is infamous. It's the reason why his last name is in the dictionary.
0: Seriously. They smothered them by holding their mouth shut and pinching their nose. Um, The other one lay across them to stop them breathing in and struggling. It was named
2: Burking after William Burke. The entry in Webster says Burking is, quote, to murder as by suffocation, so as to leave no or few marks of violence. It's the method of murder they would use from now on. And it was such an effective method that even forensic scientists today would struggle to prove it was murder and not alcohol
0: poisoning. So when these victims came in to the anatomy schools, there were no signs on them. So the chance of a doctor recognizing a murder victim murdered the way and Hare had done it is pretty slim.
2: Abigail Simpson had hoped that William Hare would marry her daughter, that he would rescue them both from poverty. Instead, he killed the old woman, loaded her into a tea chest, and carried her down to Dr. Robert Knox's lab, all in less than 24 hours. The anatomist commented on how fresh the corpse was, and he paid them 10 pounds. Now they were murdering perfectly healthy people luring them off the street. Burke and Hare
0: were wealthy,
2: and Dr. Knox was their employer.
0: It doesn't matter where the bodies come from. And at that point, he crosses that line. And and to the general public, it does matter where those bodies come from.
2: Dr. Knox's business was thriving. He was outshining his competition. He was also the curator of the new Museum of Anatomy and Pathology at the Museum of the College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. It was a sprawling collection of impressive skulls and bones and body parts that wowed visitors. Meanwhile, Hare's boarding house hosted a stream of lodgers that spring of 1828. It was the perfect trap. They killed a 40-year-old Englishman from Cheshire who had jaundice.
1: He was still alive and dying. So they seemed to have um, put pillows over him Uh, He was certainly virtually unconscious at the time, as far as we can gather.
2: They didn't bother to learn his name. Dr. Knox paid ten pounds for
1: his body. In the meantime, they perfected their method, which was to invite strolling people who had no obvious associates or relatives to drop in for a friendly drink and a party.
2: Margaret Hare lured an old woman off the street one afternoon with cheap whiskey. They didn't know her name either. This was a pretty bold change because she did it by herself. William Hare was working on the boats on the canal, and Burke was mending shoes in the cellar. Margaret Hare gave the woman alcohol all night, but she wouldn't go to sleep, so Margaret kept luring her to bed with more whiskey. When Hare arrived home for dinner, there was a strange woman in his room. She was so drunk that she couldn't move he placed some heavy bedding over her nose and mouth. The next morning, she was dead. Hare and Burke carried her body down to Newtown. That earned them another 10 pounds. Now they needed a business plan, or at least an agreement on how to split the profits. So they settled on this. Hare would take five pounds, his wife would take one pound because she owned the lodge, and Burke would be left with four pounds. Robert Knox was pleased. He needed about 500 bodies a year for his anatomy classes, and William Burke and William Hare were becoming steady suppliers. We know why Dr. Knox and other anatomists in 1828 received very few bodies legally. Only executed criminals could be used in anatomy labs. Even today, many medical schools around the world still struggle with a lack of donated bodies, especially those schools with less resources. A traditional, cadaver-based anatomy lab would cost millions of dollars to build. So So, without a large supply of cadavers, most American and European educators have to be creative with how they teach an increasing number of medical students. And curriculum at medical schools around the world has changed over the last few decades. Dissection has become less important because there are so many other specialties to consider. Dr. Tom Gillingwater at the University of Edinburgh says that decision has had deadly consequences.
3: A young doctor um, was asked to intubate a patient and essentially put a tube down into the airway, into the trachea. And immediately behind the trachea is the esophagus. The tube goes down to your stomach. And the tube was put into the wrong tube. The patient died. The student complained and made the case, but I was never taught that the windpipe, the trachea, is in front of the esophagus. So you can't blame me. I wasn't taught that. Simple example of where just some basic anatomical knowledge would have changed that whole situation.
2: Dr. Gillingwater says that current standards for teaching anatomy at schools around the world just aren't high enough. He's worried about future doctors and their patients.
3: I know that there are students that can graduate from universities having never worked on a cadaver. There are a couple of medical schools that do teach with models and virtual reality, or who can graduate having failed all their anatomy exams because it's not a key element of what you have to pass.
2: The University of Edinburgh now uses something called an anatomage table, a virtual dissection table holding a virtual cadaver. It's another tool in the school's tool belt. Ian Campbell is the university's anatomy manager. He's responsible for the facilities and resources that support the school's anatomy teaching.
3: It's basically just a big iPad, in a way. We've got a male cadaver. The things we can do with this, we can move it, we can turn it.
2: And what are we looking at here? This is a cross section? This
3: is a sagittal section of... uh, body taking down the spine and then on the other parts you have a whole body section which is showing every compartment and at the bottom here you've just got where the legs are again you can move that up into any section
2: so you've sort of um so taken can... a knife yeah. and cut across it.
3: basically yeah you've you've taken a, a virtual scalpel you can cut through anywhere in
0: the body
2: It's a useful resource for anatomy schools because it's like having a live dissection in each lab session. And that's just not possible given the lack of cadavers at most medical universities in the world. But it's not as helpful as you might think. The image stays the same each time you use it. There's no variation, but the human body has so many variations, a young surgeon needs to experience all types of variations on a cadaver to be able to react in the operating room on a live patient. Malcolm McCollum says that depending on 3D cadavers is dangerous for everyone, and some medical schools do.
3: Would you like a pilot landing a plane? He's only done it on a computer game. You still need to get down to the actual, the, well, quite literally, the guts of the matter. So you need to know what an organ, the texture of an organ is, you know, how, how heavy is your heart, what are the smells that come out when you open up a body, things like that. In
2: 1828, Dr. Robert Knox wasn't thinking of the bodies on his exam table as people. They were subjects, a means to an end, sort of like martyrs for the greater good. And that haughty attitude would follow him for the rest of his life. In the years to come, his story would become fodder for authors and filmmakers, and even children on the playground.
1: Up the close and down the stair, bend the hoose with bark and hair. Bark's the butcher, hair's the thief knocks the boy who buys the beef.
2: Janet Brown trudged along one of the wet streets of Old Town on what was, for her, a horrible morning. It was Wednesday, April 9th, and she was just trying to recuperate from a night of drunken debauchery. The 25 year old was exhausted from an intoxicant filled night of carousing and careening through the streets. Police picked her up and kindly escorted her and her girlfriend to the safe haven of the Cannon Gate Police Office for the night. The young ladies were taken there for protection. They needed protection from the people on the street, and frankly, the people on the street needed protection from them. It was now five o'clock in the morning. The sun was not yet emerging over the slowly waking city, and the police had just let them both loose because they seemed to have sobered up. But Janet and her friend, 18-year-old Mary Patterson, were still half drunk, still hopelessly morose. They thought, maybe we should find some more spirits. The pair weaved along the medieval fishbone streets with the narrow closes, winds, and courts splintering off the spine formed by High Street. The tall tenements, combined with the slender spaces and incessant street noise, were a little suffocating for strangers. But the girls always felt at home. Janet and Mary were both lodgers in Leith, a small area just north of the city. The two women had become fast friends a year before. Janet and Mary were attractive, particularly Mary. Janet was certainly not dowdy, but Mary tended to receive the most attention. And that's an important note for later on. Janet was very astute. What she lacked in formal education, she made up for with ample amounts of street smarts, unless there happened to be a drink in her hand. Mary Patterson was like other people in Old Town. She sometimes went by other names, like Mary Mitchell. She had a sad start to life because both of her parents were
0: dead. And then things got even worse.
2: Tell me about Mary Patterson.
0: She was the daughter of a mason, um, and she worked at the house of an engraver. And she became pregnant, and she went into the Magdalene Asylum.
2: It was a home for at-risk young women, and Mary had been there for three years. She had recently checked out against the advice of her religious counselors. And she celebrated her freedom by drinking with her friend Janet.
0: Mary was released from the Magdalene Asylum, and she met up with her friend Janet. She hadn't been drinking for three years because you weren't allowed to do that in the Magdalene Asylum. It
2: was still dark outside and very cold and damp. The combination would make a girl's teeth chatter and arms crisscross her chest. And High Street in the early morning was strangely serene. Side by side... Mary and Janet had ambled towards Swanston Spirit Shop near the head of the Cannon Gate. It was almost 6 a.m. It was a relief to be inside because there was some warmth. They shared a gill of whiskey, which was about five ounces. As they sat and complained about their horrible night, one of them noticed a man hovering nearby. Even in the shadow of a dim, flickering gaslight, Janet could see he wasn't young, clearly in his mid-30s. He was fairly dapper, at least for a man in Old Town. His skin had a dark hue, either from working on the canal or from his days spent toiling in potato fields. He wasn't tall, about five foot five, but he was solidly built with dark hair and blue eyes. A thin layer of mutton chops had framed his round face that brightened when he saw the women glancing his way. He pushed his dram of rum and bitters to the side and chatted them up. He introduced himself as William, a cobbler from Ireland living in Westport. He asked if they might enjoy some rum and bitters also. This was good fortune for the women. It wasn't often that a decent man paid them attention. There weren't many of those in Canongate. They each had a gill of rum and bitters, and the three laughed. Janet noticed Burke gazing at her. When she was sober, Janet was coy, even demure, compared to her boisterous friend. Mary was adventurous and daring,
0: while Janet preferred quiet observation. Burke was more interested in her than in Mary Patterson, and interested in her in a sexual way, in that his plans that day were not to go out and kill somebody for, for Knox, His plans were to go and have sex with a woman, and that Janet Brown was what he was actually after.
2: Burke leaned in closer and suggested the three of them retire to his brother Constantine's flop house at Gibbs Close. It was just a short stroll away. He could make them a proper breakfast. This might sound like the threat of a sexual assault in addition to murder, but Janet Philp says
0: no. Most of the stories about Burke do not put any sort of idea that they're killing people as a result of some sort of sexual predatory thing. There is one person who suggests that Hare was... Um, interested in necrophilia. But there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever.
2: Janet was wary. She prided herself on her instincts and something felt wrong. Burke smiled and became insistent. I have a pension that could keep you comfortable for the rest of your life, he said to her. If that sounds familiar, it's because William Hare offered Abigail Simpson the same thing months earlier before killing her. For a woman accustomed to life on the streets, Burke's charm and genuine interest were flattering, even intriguing. He never mentioned that he was married.
0: There's a story before all this started that he was not faithful to his wife. They had a house before in Brown's Close where they had somebody who came to stay with them, a a female relative. And that was the person he was unfaithful with in the bed in their house whilst his wife was there. So I don't think there's any, we're not fooling ourselves that he's a faithful husband. Janet
2: could just sense Burke's urgency, his insistence that they should all leave. She finally agreed. Burke grinned and then strode over to the shopkeeper and requested two bottles of whiskey, one for each woman. They bundled up and left together for his brother's lodge, their bodies pushing against the frigid air wafting off the river. They laughed and chatted idly as they made their way to the brother's dingy residence a few blocks away. The women were still warm from rum. You'll be safe, he assured them. When the trio arrived, Burke's brother Constantine and his Scottish wife Elizabeth greeted them at the door. The room felt soggy and chilly. They lived in poverty. There was no lock on the door, just a flimsy latch. The curtains were worn patchwork. Old prints were nailed to the walls for decoration. There was just one bed for a family of five. Burke's eyes darted to the unlit fireplace. Janet flinched as the Irishman turned from charming to violent, smacking his sister-in-law for not lighting the wood. He unleashed a parade of swears that would embarrass anyone. Janet was stunned, but Constantine and Elizabeth weren't surprised. They were used to his erratic behavior, especially when he was drinking. They tried to shuffle their seven year old daughter Elizabeth out of the room. Her brothers Richard and William were nearby. It was a sad sight. They barely had clothing to wear. The fire was soon lit, and then a plentiful breakfast was served, just as their new friend William had promised. The spirits somehow softened the horrid scene that was all too common in Old Town. The group dined on a real Scottish meal. Bannock bread, eggs, and fin and haddock cold smoked on green wood and peat, chased down with ample amounts of whiskey. Janet would occasionally sip her jar of Scottish breakfast tea. The black variety brewed with the strongest imported leaves. The acidic taste was meant to cloak the putrid public water that couldn't be purified even with boiling. Burke's brother Constantine took only a dram. He had to leave with the dawn, roaming the street as a scavenger, one of the most disgusting jobs in the city, the one often held exclusively by the Irish of Edinburgh. Edinburgh's foul smell was fabled. The Scots adhered to an old tradition of emptying their chamber pots out of windows around 10 o'clock at night. Early the next morning, Workers like Constantine Burke would collect the waste on carts and carry it out of the city. Constantine had served in the army in Northern Ireland. He was considered a reliable hard worker. He stayed sober, kept his head down, and provided for his family. Once Constantine left for work, Elizabeth also left the room, still smarting from Burke's abuse. He was now alone with Janet and Mary. Janet was wobbly, but not yet succumbing to the endless amounts of alcohol. Whiskey did not treat the younger girl well. Mary was nodding off while sitting at the small table. Burke led her to a trundle bed and drew the surrounding curtains around her. The
0: Irishman peered at Mary. They had a lot to drink. Burke took them back to Constantine's flat. Mary became unconscious with the amount of drink that she'd had. Burke and Janet went out for lunch. Burke grabbed Janet under the arm and steered her out the door to
2: another nearby public house for more food. She was in a fog. He plied her with two more bottles of porter. He supplemented it with a meat pie to keep her from vomiting. Janet accepted all three gifts and was descending into dizziness. Burke marveled at her tolerance. She tried to watch him closely, even in her inebriated state. He was drinking as much as she, and he seemed just as unsteady. But it was all an act. He was just fine. Janet still had a queasy, uneasy feeling. Burke encouraged her to return with him to Constantine's Lodge. When they got there, Janet staggered across the flat, only focused on the next bottle of whiskey Burke handed her. She heard a noise and froze. The curtains around the bed flew open, revealing a stout, dowdy woman standing near a still-sleeping Mary. Nellie McDougall scowled at Janet, and then her eyes flashed toward Burke. Janet was drunk and bewildered. Who was she? That's his wife, Elizabeth whispered. With no warning, Nellie unleashed a string of obscenities at Janet for trying to seduce her husband. Janet tried to interrupt. I didn't know he was married. She begged to leave. Nellie snapped back, it's no fault of yours. Nellie ruefully explained how Burke was in the habit of deserting her and spending their few shillings on women. Janet looked to the door, hoping to slip out. Nellie noticed and she began to panic. She knew that Janet would be the perfect specimen for the anatomist in Newtown. So she quickly modified her approach, anxiously insisting that Janet sit down and stay. You can't leave. Nellie's head snapped back toward Burke. She snatched a plate of breakfast eggs and flung them at the fireplace, splattering the meal all over the stone. Her tirade seemed solely focused on her unfaithful husband, and Burke seemed enraged at Nellie. He grabbed a bottle of cheap whiskey and flung it at his wife's face, smacking her in the forehead and slicing her skin. Janet sat petrified as Constantine's wife, Elizabeth, scurried out the door. She screamed that she would bring back help, but she actually went to find hair. Burke pushed Nellie out of the flat and into the tenement's hallway, quickly fastening the flimsy lock behind her. As his wife pounded on the door, the Irishman gazed at Janet, who was stupefied from the whole scene. Mary was still lying across the bed, not at all roused by the feud. Janet couldn't pick Mary up and leave. She would be dead weight, She needed to escape that flat alone and come back for her later. Burke moved toward Janet, insisting that his wife was worthless. Nellie's curses faded into the background. For a brief moment, Janet melted. Burke was quite handsome and warm. He took her hand to join him on the bed next to Mary, and she considered it briefly. Janet's mind flashed back to that scene of Burke hurling a glass at his wife. He could become so angry so quickly. She staggered to her feet and earnestly promised to return in 15 minutes. Burke blinked. He looked over at Mary passed out on the bed and he reluctantly allowed Janet to go home. As she scurried out the door, Nellie McDougall was still screeching at the top of the staircase. Janet stumbled down a small street as the morning welcomed the hustle of an awakening city. She walked along the winding winds and narrow closes until 10 a.m. She had finally reached the lodging house she shared with Mary. She seemed to be snapping out of her days. Janet told her old landlady about the strange, intense people she had just met a few hours ago. Mrs. Lawry listened and became alarmed. She summoned her housekeeper and ordered her to accompany Janet to rescue the girl as soon as possible. Mary Patterson might just be saved. David Patterson heard the soft knock at the large wooden door of Number 10 Surgeon's Square as he tidied up the dissection room, the signal, he assumed, of another delivery. A side note, David Patterson was not related to Mary Patterson. There stood three men, Constantine and William Burke, both holding the tea chest. William Hare was hovering nearby. Patterson understood his job very well, even though he had only had it a few months. He was Dr. Knox's doorkeeper and porter, the man always standing by with a set of keys to let colleagues in and out of the main lecture hall. The doctor insisted that no visitor wait for long, so Patterson always listened closely for rapping. He heard the voice of Alexander Miller, Dr. Robert Knox's young assistant. Miller was whispering with two other assistants, so Patterson couldn't quite make out their conversation, but it was certainly about a payment. The doctor was in class on the main campus across South Bridge, concluding his daily lecture called Annual Course of Lectures on the Anatomy and Physiology of the Human Body. Signs around campus claimed that the class would include a full demonstration of fresh anatomical subjects. Patterson knew that Knox had made many enemies on campus. There was fierce competition between anatomists, particularly for bodies. In fact, Knox paid Edinburgh's resurrection men a bonus to steal a body from one of his rivals. Dr. Knox had swiftly earned a long list of bitter adversaries, The anatomist admitted as much in a letter he wrote to a friend. I have maintained a fair average number of students against the most determined opposition, not merely the rivalry of numerous talented men, but the bitter hostility of the university. A parcel had arrived on this frigid afternoon, but Dr. Knox's assistants frowned. It was an improper time of day for illegal business. Knox usually bought most of his corpses under the cloak of darkness, several hours past the drum of the town guard, which signaled the city's 10 p.m. curfew. Patterson was also tasked with the onerous job of cleaning the blood and tissue from the tables and floors of the laboratories. Patterson would then carry off the remains from the dissection
0: floors and find a place to bury them.
2: And he's sort of lowly in the food chain, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, he would have been living in the old town, you know, not being paid very much. He probably did a lot of things for Knox that you know, his, his anatomy school wouldn't have been as great if Patterson hadn't been doing all that stuff behind the scenes.
2: When a new corpse arrived, Patterson would wash and clean it before it was presented for dissection in the classroom. He also ran messages for Knox and his assistants. But his most important job was to dole out money to grave robbers. Patterson saw the empty tea chest on the floor, and that was a telltale sign that a body had been delivered. It was made of rough wood, a box large enough to contain a body, but only when it was in the fetal position. The doorkeeper glanced at the body on the slab, visible only by a faint gas lamp in the darkened lab. He stared down. She was a young, beautiful, naked woman with no marks of violence or disease. And she was still warm. She had died recently because rigor mortis had not yet set in. Her joints weren't stiff yet. Patterson suspected Dr. Knox would be pleased because she was in such good condition. He noticed some oddities, though. She was still wearing paper curlers, and she was clutching a two-pence half in her hand. Patterson knew that those items would have been removed if the body had been buried. She also had slight traces of blood around her nose and mouth. I was curious. Despite those things, he brushed off any suspicions. Patterson then peered over at the assistant and the two men still deeply engrossed in a whispered conversation. He had dealt with these particular resurrection men before. They had called themselves John and William. Patterson noticed that both men were filthy, unkempt, epitomes of High Street and Old Town. But they certainly knew where to find recently deceased bodies, and Patterson appreciated that. He didn't find them particularly disagreeable. They frequently smelled strongly of cheap spirits, but Patterson was used to all that. He was also from seedy Westport, though he had been baptized and raised in a proper, well-respected home. Patterson preferred John and William to other resurrection men. There were characters named things like Mole or Stoop who lurked around the dirty lodging houses. In fact, Knox's porter also dealt with grave robbers from other
0: regions. Various medical schools were importing bodies from outside. There were large gangs operating in London. There was a a case where one of the medical schools down in London tried to get out of its arrangements with its body suppliers, and they went in and they slashed all the bodies so they were useless for teaching. The body suppliers, these grave robbers, had the medical school exactly where they wanted them, and they totally controlled what they were doing. Patterson fiddled with the
2: banknotes in his pockets. He was authorized to give the men up to eight pounds, but it was contingent on the condition of the corpse. And judging by the high quality of this woman, he suspected she would fetch the full amount. Another apprentice soon joined them, William Ferguson, Knox's most trusted assistant. He was especially skilled with a scalpel, and he normally handled the enormous pressure of his position well. But the 20-year-old seemed startled as he gazed down at the young woman's body. Ferguson recognized her from Old Town. He called her Mary Mitchell, though most knew her by Patterson. Ferguson grew visibly uneasy, jittery at surveying a woman whose unusual beauty was well known in the Canongate. Ferguson repeated his assertion that he knew her, and he seemed to be in disbelief at her premature death. Now here's a bit about the lore of Burke and Hare. More of the lies passed down for generations about this story. For almost 200 years, Mary Patterson has been labeled a sex worker.
1: Author Owen Dudley Edwards explains the story. When they brought Mary Patterson to Dr. Knox's, one of his assistants thought he had previously met the lady in her professional capacity while he was looking at her in his
2: The insinuation is that Knox's assistants recognized her because they had paid her for sex. While that's a dramatic story, it's also wrong. Several historians, including authors Lisa Rosner and Janet Philp, have found no record that Mary Patterson was a sex worker. She likely went to the hospital where all three of Knox's assistants would have worked.
0: It's quite possible the doctors recognized her because those doctors would have been on the wards, and she had been in the ward recently.
2: The student peered over and asked William Burke, where did you get this body? He quickly offered an explanation about purchasing her from an old woman who found her dead.
1: He explained that Mary Patterson had been drinking with them, that she had fallen asleep, that she had fallen into her own vomit, and that she had choked on her own vomit.
2: It was the first time that question had been asked in more than half a dozen business dealings over the past six months. Patterson thought that was a reasonable response the corpse had reeked of spirits. So Burke's explanation had successfully stopped
1: the questions. For now. In any case, the doctors didn't really want to ask that many questions about where the body had been, and Burke had given a plausible explanation.
2: Burke whispered a warning to Patterson. If there continue to be questions about the origin of the cadavers, I will no longer sell the bodies to Dr. Knox. The doctor had ordered Patterson to stay out of the way of these men, so he kept silent. But he was suspicious. Relatives rarely sold bodies of family members. The poor people in Old Town held their religious beliefs sacred. They would spend their last shilling on a proper Catholic or Protestant burial. It was possible, Patterson supposed, that Birkenhair bought her from a brothel or a lodging house for paupers. These new asylums seemed to surface almost every day in the Cannon Gate. One of the students gave Burke a pair of scissors to cut off her beautiful crimson locks, presumably to be crafted into a lady's hairpiece and resold. When the job was complete, Patterson handed the pair the full eight pounds. Burke would give his brother 10 shillings for helping transport the body. But now Constantine was uneasy. He glared at William and told him that he wouldn't ever help him again. He did not approve of grave robbers. Patterson encouraged them to leave the laboratory, and then he made the short walk to Dr. Knox's townhouse on the wealthy Newington Street to alert him of the new acquisition. Mary Patterson's body would mark a turning point for Dr. Knox. She was young and healthy. There was no reason for her death. He should have been alarmed but he didn't seem to be, and soon the tenuous relationship between science and religion would be tested, all thanks to the anatomist and his bodies. David Patterson opened the lab's door and welcomed the doctor inside. Dr. Knox stared with wide eyes at the woman on the table. The lowly porter watched him, determined to remember every detail. on the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked.
1: Burke persuaded them to leave the woman with him and said, oh, but that he would take her to a place where she'd be looked after. She'd be all right. What
2: are the fears? What are the myths that you've heard?
3: The kind of stories you hear from medical schools of, oh, you know, there was a medical student that managed to take a foot out of the class
0: book claims that at that point, he started having to drink a large amount of whiskey before he could sleep at night, and he always slept with the light on. If you love historical
2: true crime, be sure to order my book, American Sherlock. It's about a real-life Sherlock Holmes who solved some of the most gruesome murders in the 1920s. The paperback arrives on February 16th, but it's available for pre-order now. This has been an Exactly Right and Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling and Laura Sobel, sound designer Eric Friend, composer Curtis Heath, artwork Nick Toga, executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked, and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com/ads. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. So please listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.